Hey, a Penknife listeners, Corey here. I again got stuck with the task of bothering you to help us promote the show. This season was both extremely time-consuming and costly, and if you like what you're hearing and want more Penknife, please help us out by doing one or more of the following. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us right now, tell your friends both in person, if that still happens, and on social media, and if you can spare a few bucks a month, please support us at patreon.com penknife. Thanks for suffering through my spiel. Here's the show. I hope you enjoy it. Next, a campaign for a lasting memorial to one of Leicester's most well-known writers has been launched. Yes, the Joe Orton Statue Appeal has been organised by Orton fans and is backed by a host of celebrities. Uh, Jane Hesketh is at the Curve Theatre in Leicester where the launch is taking place this evening. Um, Jane, just tell us a bit more about him. Well, good evening from a very scorching Leicester. And the great and the good are gathering behind me at the Curve Theatre tonight to launch an appeal to build a statue to the Leicester playwright Joe Orton. Now, his work was groundbreaking, it was iconic, and his plays were performed all over the world. Britons are changing the way they look at history in the last couple of days. Thousands of people have come out in the streets to protest against imperial leaders, slave traders and wartime heroes. From Winston Churchill to Robert Clive, those who were once called the greatest Britons are now being called racists. Some of their statues have been vandalized, some statues have been burnt, dragged through the streets and thrown into water. The latest statue to face the heat is that of Mahatma Gandhi's. Protesters want Gandhi's statue removed from Leicester. They say Gandhi was a fascist, racist, and sexual predator. In late May of 2020, after a Minneapolis police officer was caught on video savagely murdering a black man, George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement erupted into an insurrectionary fervor that radically shifted both political discourse and policy in the United States. Its waves reverberated around the world, and in England, one of its manifestations was a reckoning with the figures who are depicted in statues throughout the country. The first to topple was 17th century slave trader Edward Colston in Bristol, and in Leicester, Joe Orton's hometown, the flashpoint was a statue of Mahatma Gandhi. A petition signed by over 6,000 people called for the removal of the statue and labeled Gandhi, once a hero of the anti-colonialist, peace-loving left, a fascist, racist, sexual predator. Another group of people denied those claims and actually formed a human chain around the statue to offer symbolic protection against the spate of vandalism attempts. This podcast isn't about Gandhi, and we're not going to try to verify or contest the claims about his bad deeds. For some context, though, it seems clear that especially while Gandhi was living in South Africa from 1893 to 1914, he expressed racist views about black Africans. As for the claim of him being a sexual predator, yeah, there's some creepy stories of him testing his willpower by sharing a bed with naked teenage girls, including his grandnieces, in an attempt not to get aroused. Anyhow, we bring this up because it seemed odd that while this controversy was going on in Leicester with Gandhi, they were also planning on erecting a statue to Joe Orton in the city's cultural quarter. I'm Ramona Stout, a writer who lives in Hanya, Greece, and I'm quite surprised they chose Orton for a statue, and not Daniel Lambert, who's historically one of Leicester's most famous sons. In the late 19th century, he was widely celebrated for being the fattest man in the world. Hmm, that's a possibility. 
I'm Corey Eastwood, a writer and bookseller from New York, and while I respect the Lambert choice, I'd first commemorate Phil Shaw, who, of course, you all know, is the inventor of extreme ironing. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, yes, Shaw popularized the sport by ironing his shirts on cliffs and by starting the Extreme Ironing International. But everyone knows that it was Tony Hayam from North Yorkshire who founded EI in 1980 when he took his iron atop telephone booths and into crowded airports. Anyhow, I'm Santiago Lemoine, a writer and bookseller from Buenos Aires, and you're listening to Penknife, a podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. In 2019, a campaign was launched to raise money for the Lester Orton statue, and a host of celebrities backed the effort. Sir Ian McKellen, Stephen Fry and Alec Baldwin among them. Ah, great team. Gandalf, Jeeves and notorious vegan murderer Alec Baldwin. (laughs) In late November of that year, news broke that the statue appeal had reached their fundraising goal of £115,000. And as they began the search for an artist to build the statue, a little thing called COVID-19 happened. And everything, Joe Orton's statue included, was put on hold. But as you may have heard, Boris Johnson in the UK weren't afraid of a little coronavirus. And a couple of years later, while germ-fearing people around the world lived with masks, curfews and being forced to send texts to the government before they took their dogs out for a pee, the Brits went back to business as usual. The West End brought back Les Mis, The Lion King and The Mousetrap. And just a stone's throw away, in March of this year, the Seven Dials Playhouse began showing. No, not loot, nor entertaining Mr Sloan. Not what the butler saw, nor the ruffian on the stair, but Diary of a Somebody, a play assembled by John Lara in 1986 using Orton's diaries, letters, and interviews. That's right. In the year 2022, there was just a production of a play that's a verbatim dramatization of the exact diary we've just spent the last two episodes dissecting, Tangier and all. You'd think that in an age of hypersensitivity about causing offense, and in an age where the penalties are high for those who do so, that nobody in their right mind would dare to put on a performance of Orton's diaries. But gladly, somebody did. The somebodies behind Diary of a Somebody were director Nico Raupin-Pere, producer Darren Murphy, and writer John Lahr, contributed a few edits for this 2022 version. And with the help of a highly versatile and just generally fantastic cast, they put on a great play. The three of us traveled to London to see it, expecting it to go one of two ways. One, they'd cut the offending parts, and this time it would be the left censoring the playwright who'd always run up against conservative censorship. Or two, they would just keep the quote-unquote difficult parts. And remember, we're not only talking about pederasty here, but a heavy dose of racism and misogyny as well. And these days, to keep it all the same without comment would, I'm sure, cause many to claim that they were condoning those difficult parts. Not the best options, either of them. But I think their solution was the right one. With the exception of two very minor changes, the removal of a couple of offensive words, they retained the original script and posted signs in the theater that said essentially, the content has been kept verbatim in order to maintain historical accuracy. It does not represent the view of the theater or producers, and some of it may be offensive. I'm really glad they weren't scared away by this so-called difficult content and just went for it. The result was brilliant, a very powerful evocation of the breakdown in Halliwell and Orton's relationship. It managed to both accentuate Orton's humor and to do justice to the terrible tragedy of his end. The Tangier section was complicated, though. It didn't hide anything, but at the same time, 
though there were a number of references to 15-year-old rent boys, they were delivered in Joe's nonchalant tone, which gave it all a bit of levity. Jokes about the Moroccan maid that Halliwell liked to bully and about the boys received much more audible laughter than offence. True, but theatre-going Brits aren't exactly the type for boos or guffaws. When uncomfortable, a little polite laughter is a more typical response. We mention this to point out that even when those telling this story are explicit about the uglier aspects of Orton's life, it's still easy to miss what was really happening. We interviewed director Nico Rao Pimpere, who was very aware of how complicated the content was and went out of his way not to hide any of its nuances. And likewise, when we spoke to Richard Curson Smith, the director of the 2017 documentary Joe Orton Laid Bare, he too said that he made a deliberate effort to portray Joe's pederasty in his film. Yet I watched that film twice, and for some reason it wasn't until I read the diaries that I really understood what was going on in Tangier. And although John Lahr, the one responsible for creating the Orton narrative that's been told over and over again for the past 40 years, didn't choose to focus on Orton's pederasty, he definitely made no deliberate effort to hide it. This is all to say that when a narrative gets repeated so many times that it gets fixed in public consciousness, Jorton great playwright, Jorton gay icon, Jorton tragic victim, it can be very hard to change it. Well, no one is looking to change it. At least, we surely aren't. All the good things about Orton stand and deserve celebration, but complicating it, making it less black and white, has also proved difficult. So let's get back to 2020, when things definitely were getting complicated. Gandhi was toppling, Gabriel Matzneff, the French pederast writer, was getting his much overdue comeuppance, and Joe Orton was getting a statue. Yeah, complicated indeed, but that was two years ago. What's the status of the Orton statue, you may ask? Well, we called Joe's sister Leonie Orton Barnett for an update. That's the main theme now, running through the Leicester City Council's thoughts, that we can't have this man, a statue of this man, who they think um, or assume was a paedophile. Um, but we'll see what happens with all that. I, it's been an ongoing, long-running process mm. with people doing their best to, 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 to get something up because, you know, I mean, public money's involved. And who was the opposition? Oh, well, we've had letters from, from different people, um, who shall be nameless, mm. um, a police inspector and from somewhere in another county and that objecting to having um, a statue of Orton. In other words, Orton's traditional enemies, cops and conservativewomen.co.uk, not exactly the kind of people who have been labelled woke statue topplers by the British tabloids. And I think the Leicester City Council are afraid, uh, you know, want to protect the public from from these sort of mini-riots or whatever you want to call them, you know, I don't... I think that... I think that's their main objection, that they, it might cause... it might cause offence. We have heard on record from two sources, one of whom is directly involved in the talks with the Leicester City Council, that it is now unlikely that a statue will be built in or around Orton Square, as was initially proposed by the Statue Appeal and given preliminary approval by the City Council. There is a chance it will be moved to the University, and the final commemoration may or may not be a statue. The change in the City Council's position is largely due to a threat of controversy in this climate of hyper-politicized statues, 
with Orton's pederasty at the forefront of the discussion. So now that we know that the statue isn't happening, at least as it was originally planned, the debate seems to be moving to how can we commemorate a very flawed but also very important individual? Leonie Orton asks this question. You know, why should an artist have to be morally pure to, if you like, be, a, be fantastic? And, and why can't we separate that? And there you have it. The question this podcast keeps coming back to. Can we, should we, how do we separate the art from the artist? Right, that's the catch-all issue at hand. But specifically, I think there are two questions here that we each need to ask ourselves. One, how bad or good of a guy was Joe Orton? Given all we learned last episode that provides context for his actions, actions that today would definitely be considered arrestable crimes, and not just in Morocco, how do we feel about him and his legacy as a writer and as a human being? And two, should that matter when discussing his statue? And in general, if we're going to build statues of people, what criteria should we use to judge who deserves to be immortalized in stone and who doesn't? So first, Orton. Good? Bad? Both? Well, the answer is obviously both. But in regards to the statue, the only question people are really asking is, how bad was he? So we'll start there. For those who haven't listened to the whole podcast and are only tuning in to this episode because you're interested in the Lester statue controversy, I'll briefly summarize what we learned in episode 7. And that's that in the 1960s, Joe made several trips to Tangier where he engaged in sex tourism with teenage boys as young as 13. His final trip is well documented in his diaries, which were published in 1986. And the tales he tells, they ain't pretty. In them, the boys are essentially objects there for Joe to use and discard at will. We then spoke at length to the historian Rachel Hope Cleves and learned that Orton was far from alone in his actions. And furthermore, that while we now view this kind of behavior as horrific, there wasn't nearly the taboo around intergenerational sex in the 60s that there is today. Orton was not a monster or a freak. He was a white British man who used his privilege to take advantage of people less powerful than him. Again, crap, but show me a white British man in the 60s who wasn't using his privilege to get one over on others. Okay, so we have a man who did some very bad things within a society that allowed, even encouraged, those kinds of things. And we'd be remiss not to again point out that homosexuality was illegal in Orton's 1960s. Sleeping with men was considered nearly as deviant and perverted as sleeping with 15-year-old boys. The distinction between the two hadn't really been drawn yet. To the extent that it had been, it was drawn in very light pencil. So he fits into a few of those boxes we keep talking about. He was a predator, and he was oppressed by the society he lived in, and at the same time, he was a great and groundbreaking dramatist. Orton's plays were hilarious and entertaining, but they were much more than that. They attacked society's conventions and institutions and the hypocrisies that buoyed them. The state, the church, the army, and the nuclear family. No one was off limits. Nothing was sacred. His goal was to disenchant, to expose the people in power for the frauds he was sure that they were. But he wasn't coming at them from the purity of the left, but rather with a sort of mischievous nihilism. Yes, he thought himself better than others, namely because he fancied himself smarter, more handsome, and in better shape. But from a moral perspective, the only edge he claimed over anyone else was that he wasn't hiding anything. Right. He loved nothing more than to provoke. And he loved controversy. So you think he'd like this statue debate? I could imagine him having a laugh over it. 
Especially when you consider the irony that in his final play, What the Butler Saw, a statue of Winston Churchill is destroyed in a gas explosion. Quick aside, the Churchill statue in London wasn't destroyed during the statue topplings of 2020, but because of Churchill's racist past, it was vandalized so many times that it had to be boarded up. Anyhow, in Orton's play, because of the explosion, pieces of the statue, including Churchill's oversized penis, impale and kill one of the main character's mothers. And at the end of the play, Orton arranges it so that the coroner returns the penis to the daughter, and a police officer finds it and lifts it up to parade it around stage. In an early draft of the play, the massive stone penis in question wasn't Churchill's, but JFK's. Peggy Ramsey, Joe's agent, told him, Kennedy is a martyr. You never get away with that. And now Joe's the martyr. And judging by his statue controversy, he can't get away with what he did in Tangier either. But would building him a statue mean he'd be getting away with it? I don't necessarily think so. When was it declared that you had to be morally pure to have a statue built in your likeness? Mm, A couple of years ago, I think. Someone made a TikTok video about it. You didn't see it? (laughs) Funny, but this is a serious question. What criteria are we going to use to judge those already enshrined in stone and metal and those who might next warrant it? Saying that you have to be perfect, which is what the right would like us to believe the statue topplers are saying, and maybe some of them are, is obviously nonsense. If that's the criteria, then let's get started in tearing them all down. And I, for one, would be all for that. As my late great friend Paul Lion King used to say, off with their heads. Speaking of Lion Kings, statues to animals are cool. More than cool. I think they're the solution. And London already figured it out. The South Bank is filled with statues of monkeys. Ah, Orton and Halliwell's favorite. They're great. All kinds of monkeys, or chimpanzees, actually. You got happy monkeys, sad monkeys, monkeys in love, monkeys picking bugs out of each other's hair. Yeah, right, but not all animals are created equal. Or how does it go? Some animals are more equal than other animals. As part of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebration this year, they placed a bunch of corgi statues throughout London to represent her lifelong love of the dog. Apparently, she's had 30 of them in her 96 years. Yeah, well, that ruins the idea that animal statues can't be offensive. What's offensive about monarchy, empire, and colonialism? You're saying those cute little corgis have blood on their paws. (laughs) Not going to touch that. Let's just forget about the corgis for a moment and go back to the monkeys. Because they might be the solution. Right. Instead of tearing down the statues, they could just deface them all. Turn the human faces into monkey faces a la Orton and Halliwell when they pasted monkeys' faces on the dust jacket over top a Tudor or in a rose. Or at least make Orton's statue monkey-faced. He was rather vain. I'm not sure he'd appreciate that. Eh, maybe not. But I do think Joe would probably like the fact that they were going to build a statue of him for the cheeky irony of it all. I mean, pretty much the main word attached to Joe, the person and the playwright, is iconoclast. The literal definition of that word is someone who aims to destroy icons, images, or monuments, generally those that venerate a certain figure. I was discussing this with my friend Jacques, and he suggested that the perfect Orton statue would be one depicting Joe Orton using a hammer to smash a Joe Orton statue. Well, I have nothing against toppling the statues of slave traders or Churchills, Kennedys, and the like. If you keep following that line of thinking, it can get really complicated. I mean, why stop at statues? What about other areas of life, where someone's likeness stands as an exemplar or representative of something? Names, for example. Christopher Columbus's statues are coming down, you know, for that whole imperialism, genocide thing he had a hand in starting in the Americas. So why is there an Ivy League school and even a country named after him? Last year, the San Francisco School Board tried to tackle this issue around names, and the result was, well, not very pretty. 
After a review of all of the city's public school names, they voted to change 44 that were named after people who were deemed to have, in some way, shape, or form, oppressed others or the environment. To be axed were names such as George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Paul Revere, Robert Louis Stevenson, John Muir, and Dianne Feinstein. The plan to remove them, though, was quickly scrapped when it turned out that the city council hadn't done their homework. They'd come up with a kill list after doing some cursory Googling and Wikipedia research, and it showed. The 19th century romantic poet and diplomat James Russell Lowell was to be removed for not wanting to allow black people the right to vote. But according to his scholarly biography, he unequivocally supported the right to vote for recently freed slaves. Paul Revere was part of a failed American military campaign during the Revolutionary War, which somehow, after a misreading of History.com, became an expedition to colonize Native American lands. Robert Louis Stevenson, author of Treasure Island and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, was on the list because in his 1885 classic, A Child's Garden of Verses, he used the word Japanese in place of Japanese in order to make the line rhyme. Now, I'm not about to defend the celebration of any of these people's names, but the knee-jerk and frankly historically ignorant way in which they were about to be erased just gives fodder to the right who love to scream, cancel culture run amok, every time there's a serious effort to reckon with the uglier aspects of our history. Mm, yeah, I guess they got a point though. To me, this all sounds a little bit too close to Stalin's Great Purge or McCarthy's Red Scare. Another fascinating aspect of this story is that one name that was debated but allowed to stay was Malcolm X. He's known to have espoused sexist views and to have worked as a pimp in his youth. Now, I think they absolutely made the right choice in not removing Malcolm X. But it raises the question, if the criteria for getting rid of someone is that they can't have oppressed others in any way, why can Malcolm X be forgiven for working as a pimp but Stevenson can't for making a vaguely racist rhyme in 1885? Again, part of me is all for stripping them all away, tearing them all down. Goodbye, Lincoln. Bye-bye, Feinstein and Colston and Gandhi and Stevenson, too. But then what? Put other, purer names in their place? Good luck finding them. My takeaway here is that I really think we should just follow London's lead and be done with it. Monkeys. Monkeys are the answer. Can't you see it? Gorilla High, Ape Elementary, Orangutan You? <laughs> yeah. That's what they tried to do with currency in Argentina, actually, just a few years ago. They changed the design on the bills, which up to that point had always had the faces of historical figures, to drawings of very cute and innocent native animals. Sounds like a great solution, doesn't it? Well, it wasn't. The problem with being apolitical, or pretending to be, is that it's also a political stance. What the right-wing party in power at the time actually wanted to do was to get rid of the face of Evita Perón on the 100 pesos note. Because they can't stand the values she represents, they replaced her with a deer. And now that the Peronista party is back in power, they're printing new bills and putting her face back on them. So, no, I don't think that cute monkeys and deers are necessarily a good solution. In Italy, they've come up with another solution. In a town in the South Tyrol, Bolzano, they've taken the Victory Monument and Tax Office, both erected by Mussolini, and recast them via artistic interventions that highlight the context of fascism, the Nazi occupation and all the other battles that have raged around identity in the region. The tax office now bears the Hannah Arendt quote, no one has the right to obey, above the inscription, believe, obey, combat, that has been there since 1939. This seems to me to be a viable alternative to tearing them all down. As a local said, by transforming monuments instead of destroying them, we give people the chance to question ideology and reflect on history. 
which kind of echoes Banksy's thoughts on the Colston statue. He thinks it should be dredged up, reinstated, and surrounded by bronze figures of the protesters pulling it down. What to do with the empty space on the Colston plinth has been a big debate in Bristol. First, someone put up a statue of Jen Reed, a Black Lives Matter protester. And because it wasn't authorized, the city council immediately removed it. Then, and I think this is pretty genius, someone put up a mannequin of Jimmy Savile, who, for US listeners, was basically the UK's Mr. Rogers, but who turned out to be the ultimate pedo. They put him up there on the plinth with a sign that read, none of them stopped it and your license paid for it. The BBC, turning a blind eye since 1922. There you have another potential solution. Agreeing on a truly good person is difficult, but there are plenty of bad guys out there who no one is going to defend. Instead of immortalizing society's successes, maybe we should just put up our biggest failures so that we don't make the same mistakes again. Yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous, but you have a point. Essentially the hackneyed line that those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And while I'm not with the camp that says that tearing down statues will lead people to forget history, there does seem to be an inherent danger in erasing history that makes us uncomfortable. Eh. I really think that this whole argument that people will forget history if the statues come down is nonsense. Most people couldn't care less about the bronze figures on horseback that they walk past while searching for a park bench to sit on and look at their phones. And plus, what are they learning by Googling some lord or captain or president? I mean, there's lots of history out there. Why Colston instead of a BLM protester? Or instead of Jimmy Savile, for that matter? Traditionally, statues are just like history books. They're created by the victors. The history they aim to teach us is all about glorifying the power of the establishment. And the people they represent are usually people who are part of consolidating or maintaining that power, or that served its ideology. And when statues don't represent the powers that be, they at least have to conform to a standard dictated by those powers. Yeah, for example, do you know who Claudette Colvin is? No, never heard of her. In 1955, she became the first person to plead not guilty to the crime of sitting in the wrong seat of a Montgomery bus. But she was 15, unmarried, and pregnant. Civil rights organizers were worried about what the white press would do with this information, so they highlighted Rosa Parks instead. A great woman for sure, but also a better candidate to be the poster child for the movement. So what's the takeaway here? Statues, street names, icons. Seems like it's basically impossible to put human beings on pedestals if you're putting them up there, not only for their achievements, but because they're supposed to be beacons of morality. Well, I don't think anyone's saying that. Again, that's what the right would want you to believe about the people calling for statue toppling. But where do you draw the line? How bad is too bad? In 2022, we all agree that it doesn't get much worse than slave trading. But what about Gandhi and Churchill? They are accused of being racist and had the ability to exercise that racism from positions of power. But in Gandhi's case, at least, putting aside sleeping with his grandnieces for a moment, he seems mostly guilty of saying racist things rather than trying to enact racist policies. See, that's where it gets so tricky. There's no standardized rubric that can be applied to each person because there's a wide and murky spectrum of bad things people can do apart from murder, rape, genocide or slave trading that would make erecting a statue to them objectionable. Sure. But aside from being there to remember the person, and going back to what Corey said, statues have historically first and foremost been built to represent ideals. I mean, there was an actual first original Buddha, but a Buddha statue transcends the individual. It stands for an idea, Buddhism. 
Right. And for the sake of this argument, we'll leave aside religious iconoclasts, but note that certain faiths, and particularly some Islamic sects, call for the destruction of all religious icons. As we all know, depictions of Muhammad are verboten, but I bring it up because in 2002, the Taliban famously destroyed 6th century Buddhist statues in Kabul. That's another discussion and a very interesting one, but George Floyd is more relevant to what we're talking about here. His statue in Newark was defaced shortly after it was installed, and across the Hudson in New York City, a bronze sculpture of George Floyd that was in Union Square for a while was also defaced. People criticized the statue and sculpture by saying that public funds shouldn't have been spent on making memorial art to a man who committed several crimes, including robbery, and who spent time in prison. But the idea behind the Floyd statue is not to show a perfect person, or even a person better than any other victim of police brutality. The idea is that his likeness represents a movement, Black Lives Matter, the most important social movement in the U.S. in decades. And let's be clear about this. No one vandalized George Floyd's statues because they were upset about him being arrested several times. They attacked his statue because they are racists and neo-Nazis, literally, and don't like what the statue stands for. Who Floyd was is only being used as a rhetorical argument. Their real objection is to his blackness and to black empowerment. But the Gandhi and the Joe Orton examples prove that liking or disliking the ideals that the statues stand for isn't the only criteria. Orton's statue would stand for gay liberation, for iconoclasty and artistic freedom. But who says that Orton's likeness should be the one that represents those things in Leicester? And why does Gandhi, with his loincloth and distended stomach, stand for peace? Yeah, it seems like the argument has moved away from what they stand for and into the terrain of who they were. And I'm not sure it can ever go back from there. So what do we do? Take down all the potentially offensive statues. I got news for you. That's just about all of them and remove all the potentially offensive names? And then what? Put new ones in their place? Choose people who fit our ethical standards today? 120 years ago, when it was built in Bristol, Edward Colston's statue might have stood for philanthropy. At the time of its toppling, it stood for slave trading. So we need to realize that there's a very good chance the statues we build today will not hold up to the ethical standards of 30 years from now, let alone 300 years from now. If there is a 300 years from now. Maybe the solution is in the construction material. I was talking to my buddy Jacques about this, and he suggested we start making statues exclusively from biodegradable materials so that they have a shelf life. I don't know. At the rate things are changing, I'd suggest we limit all our new statues to one material. Ice. Anyway, statue talk aside, I want to say that the most important takeaway from this season isn't really about Joe Orton, nor is it about this incredibly difficult issue of statues. It's from the conversation I had with Rachel Hope Cleves about how the taboos around discussing pedophilia actually help pedophiles get away with their crimes. By othering or monstering pedophiles, it makes it hard for victims to report them, because again, they're mostly not freaks in trench coats luring kids into cars with candy. They're people, men usually, in the child's family or community. Apart from what they do to children behind closed doors, nothing about them fits the monster profile. And for that reason, family members and people close to the victims often go out of their way to pretend not to see what's happening. Because to quote the title of Cleve's book, the acts are unspeakable. And they're unspeakable because the taboo is so strong that even discussing it stains you. And here's the real problem we come to with Orton, or frankly most hot-button issues these days. There's no in-between. Pedophilia is pedophilia. Pedophiles are monsters. Children cannot consent, and a 15-year-old is a child. 
So paying a 15-year-old for sex in 1967 is basically considered the same thing as someone being outed for serial raping prepubescent children in 2022. These days, there's no room for nuance and no room for discussion. A pedophile is a pedophile is a pedophile. And to try to contextualize what Orton did or qualify it as different than what we think of when we think of pedophilia is seen as condoning his behavior. We do a lot of active not knowing, and that's the way we respond to all sorts of, you know, unpleasant truths. Think, you know, so I don't think it's unusual. Here's Rachel Hope Cleaves. And I also think a lot of our, there's a lot of self-deceit in our taboos anyway, that we profess repugnance often at things that our feelings might be slightly more complicated. And hence, you know, were you to ask the theater goers in a survey before they, you know, watched this play, what do you think about, you know, adult men, you know, having sex with boys? I'm sure they're, they would, most of them would express repugnance, but like in the context of the play, it evokes laughter, right? Active not knowing is complete. And I, I mean, I think active not knowing is like the most prominent dynamic within families that, you know, protects abusers within families because the other members of the family don't want to see and know, you know, what dad, grandpa, uncle, cousin, whatever brother is getting up to, right? Occasionally sister, mom, but usually dad, brother, uncle. And the monster discourse doesn't help. Like not being able to, you know, having only two, only one mode of speech, which is, uh, you know, monstrosity, is not helpful. So I think you should speak about it, but it's going to be complicated. And hopefully there can be context, like the context of actually Orton fit into like a broad, like he's not a monster alone. And he wasn't like the weird monster pedophile. It's been a long time since we talked about Kenneth Halliwell. Well, no one wants to build a statue of him. He never wrote anything worth reading, and the jury is pretty much out on who he was. A murderer. Right. And like Joe, he also paid Moroccan teenagers for sex, and didn't have many nice things to say about people of colour or women. Bad guy. Open and close book. You could say that, and you'd be right. Thank you. But, as we've pointed out from the start, that's not all he was. Kenneth was also a child who lost both parents to tragic ends and he was a victim of homophobic society. He wasn't pure evil. He was mostly just sad. Really, really sad. You remember that conversation where Joe tells the actor Kenneth Williams that you must do whatever you like as long as you enjoy it and don't hurt anyone else? Well, during that same conversation, over a cup of tea, Joe spoke about his need for polyamory. I need to be utterly free, Joe said. Kenneth Williams replied by citing Camus and reminding him that one is always free at the expense of others. Some of Jordan's freedom came at Kenneth Halliwell's expense, and some of it definitely came at the expense of those Moroccan boys in Tangier. I think he knew that his freedom was hurting Kenneth. How could he not? He knew it, and though he tried to help Kenneth, he wasn't willing to give up that freedom. As for his freedom coming at the expense of those boys, I doubt he put any thought into it. The racist, xenophobic society Orton lived in allowed him to view what he was doing there as another step toward his own liberation, rather than what we now see it as, the exploitation of children. But no one was more aware that they were choosing their own freedom over someone else's than Kenneth Halliwell. He couldn't endure the torment in his mind, and to liberate himself from it, he stole Joe Orton's life. 
And regardless of what one thinks of Joe's life, there's no arguing that Halliwell stole from all of us as well. Joe Wharton was a great playwright, and because Kenneth Halliwell chose to pick up that hammer, Joe never wrote another play, and he's not around today to comment on this statue controversy. If he were, I'd like to think he'd want the statue of himself built, just so that it could be toppled along with everyone else's. Some stone pieces of Orton in the rubble, along with Gandhi, Kennedy, Churchill and his penis, and all the rest. Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood, Ramona Stout, and me, Santiago Lemoine. Joe Orton is voiced by Lou Ellis. Special thanks in this episode to Rachel Hope Cleves, Leonie Orton, and Emma Parker. The news clips to begin the episode were from ITV News and YN News, respectively. Penknife sound design, music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. Flor Lopez designed our website, penknifepodcast.com, where you can find a full bibliography of the works we used in researching this season. And a very special thanks to Mr. Ricker Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. And to Michael McCann for his invaluable advice this season. If you liked season two and want to help us out, the best thing you can do right now is to rate and review Penknife on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. And if you really like Penknife and want to hear more of it, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. We'd hope season two would be easier and cheaper to make than season one, but telling this story the way we thought it deserved to be told ended up being nearly as time-consuming and even more costly. We'd love to keep making Penknife, but to do so, we really need your help. Even a cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. And regardless of whether or not you leave us a review or a few bucks, we thank you for listening.